Hello, and welcome to CineDrunk, the podcast where we're drunk on cinema <laughs> and alcohol. Uh, brought to you by Cinemunch.com. I'm one of your co-hosts, Matt, joined, as always, by Elizabeth. Yeah, I'm second today, baby. <laughs> and Nathan. Hi there. It's been a minute. What are we doing today? So today we are counting down our top 10 of 2019. Now I know what you're thinking. Uh, it's February of 2020. However, we operate by like the Oscar schedule. Mm-hmm. So we always wait and put this out right before the Oscars. Um, which are so early this year. Which are so early this we year. We had that... to just call it yep. whatever we'd seen. Yep. Which is probably a lot less than past years. Oh, this year has been truly atrocious for me. But I'm still very excited to hear your top tens. We also, just for the listener, we don't know what's on each other's lists. We might have some guesses, but we don't know. We certainly don't know, know the order um, in which they'll appear. And because we are excited about our movies, this will be a two-part episode. So this that you are listening to now is our ten through six. And then we'll be back with a five through one. And by then, we'll probably be on a new drink. But what are we drinking right now? This is called the Pear Sipper. I love it. <laughs> Sometimes when you just need to sit in a chair and sip on... It's a sipper and a sitter and a, and that's what it is. You got... <laughs> oh, I've missed this. You got ice cubes. You got mm. vodka. Sure. You got pear nectar. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um... Partial to series brand, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't matter. Uh, just juice that pear, get it in there. <laughs> juice it. And some seltzer. So, you know, we thought we'd keep it simple because yep. the focus is the movies. Yeah. Um, but also something that we can sip with joy as we reflect on the year that has been. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not only stoked to get into these top tens, but stoked to get drunk because that's just also not something i don't do we don't do that often very often at all because we're old now i don't do (laughs) (laughs) um i would just put a disclaimer before we or like a caveat a major caveat before which you sort of touched on which is that this year has been the least amount of films that i have seen for easily 10 years largely just because like a a lot of work and you know some stuff personally but then also like this year has just been so overwhelming yep. with what has been happening politically. Now, I'm not. I don't really want to talk about politics, but like, just there's so much happening that I just haven't had the brain space. Right. It takes a lot of yes. energy and to energy to watching a movie. Yes. <laughs> Even though sad. I love film, and every time I watch a movie, good or bad or whatever, I'm always happy I do it. But just like starting it and doing yep. it was a chore. Was a, a a chore this year in a way that it hasn't felt. In a long time. In a long time. Yep. I agree. And everything that has been happening mentally with everything else that's going on has definitely affected like which movies resonated with me this year, which movies I went out of my way to see, um, you know, thinking about the Oscars coming up, as we said, they of course, as they almost always do in all but five of their, what, 90 year history, 91 year history. Is it 90? This is the 92nd year. 92nd yeah. year history. They can't find any women who direct films uh, do they to do nominate that? for Best Director. <laughs> they don't. Um, I ranked a top 20 just in ranking, and seven of mine were directed by women. Nice. So almost half. And then there are a couple of movies that might even appear on your list that were also directed on by women that mm-hmm. I unfortunately just didn't get to. 
So anyways, all that is to say that this year I'm a little ashamed of my list only because there were so many amazing things that I did not get to. But But at the end of the day, it is your list and it's an expression of what you lived during this year, which maybe wasn't an optimal year for anyone. For anyone. On on my hand, my mom died a year ago, which is fun. But um, that meant a couple things. One, our viewer, our listenership went down like 25%. (laughs) 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 Not because Um, we didn't post anything? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um, I mean, thanks for listening if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I also, for all the reasons you, well, maybe not the same exact reasons, but similar reasons, in addition to that, I also found it difficult to just even give myself the hour and a half if I was lucky if it yeah. was a like a movie that is the length movie should be which is supposed <laughs> to be an hour and a half that's hard enough and yeah. I think it was also because in a good way more and more there's just more and more TV like I hesitate to even yeah. say TV right. but like series content, content these yeah. days that's actually and so much of it is so good right. there's like limited time to do things that we want to do in terms of movie viewing. True. Agreed. Um, but I also wanted to say that for me at least uh, top 10 is never like these are the 10 movies I think are the best objectively. No. As if that's oh, even yeah, no, a no, thing no. you can do. And we're not like is. professional <clears throat> critics. Like if someone wants to start paying me maybe I'll reevaluate the I'll way a, I make yeah. these lists. But yeah. yeah these are personal. Yeah. But I think we all But you're paid feel... by DC to make your list and Joker's your number one. Shh, don't I mean, worry. no spoiler. <laughs> anyway, I think we're all on the same page about that, just in case someone's listening for the first time and wondering, like, how do they... Because, you know, top ten isn't necessarily right. self-explanatory. Yeah. Right. So, Agreed. Also, if you are a first-time listener, um, please send us an email about how you found this podcast <laughs> that hasn't had a new episode in a year. <laughs> anyway, but welcome. Yeah, let's get to it. Enjoy you. Yeah. Um, should I kick it off since do I started it. with do all that? Numero dies. So my number number oh, oh boy. Good start. Pear sippers. These pear sippers. My number ten is Ready or Not. <laughs> Directed by Matt Bettinelli and Bettinelli Oakland and Tyler Gillett. No sure. idea who they are, but sure. Um, this is a horror, thriller, comedy, comedy? joyride. Mm-hmm. I feel like it probably was about an hour and a half. And it was uh, an hour and a half of the most enjoyable time I have spent <laughs> in a movie theater. I was laughing hysterically. The ending was extremely satisfying. It is on a theme of this year, which is films that have something to say about uh, wealth inequality Mm -hmm. in this country. And I think what's particularly because there have been many different takes on it this year. What I think is so interesting is so it basically is this family that believes that every time someone new marries into the family, they have to play some sort of game and it's luck of the draw to see which game you play and some are like harmless games but then if you get hide and seek the family has to hunt down and try to murder the new spouse before the sun rises essentially and they're a family that like made their wealth on, they're like a hasbro family or right like they're making board games and right oh like my that. god terrifying and essentially yeah. <laughs> it's that like they the original like founding member of the family who started the board game thing basically like sold his made a deal with the devil. Yeah. Essentially. Oh. Um, 
or a devil-like figure, whatever. Um, and I, I think that that's particularly interesting just in thinking about, like, the... Not, again, I know I said I wouldn't bring politics into it, but it's hard in 2019, 2020 not to do it. Like, thinking of the Sackler family, who basically have, like, single-handedly caused the opioid crisis mm-hmm. in the United States. And just, like, these, like, deals with the devil that these really wealthy families do. So it's not just about wealth and inequality, but how families hold on to and will literally like lie, steep, chill, murder to hold on to their wealth. Um, But beyond that, it was, again, it was so fun. And then Samara Weaving as the lead. I have not had a heroine in a horror movie that I rooted for so hard in such a long time. She's so dry She's so funny. She's not some like sweet, innocent, I'm pure and that's why I get to like be the heroine of this. She is like More a character nonsense. that I would want to hang out with. Yeah. Is she the hunted? She's the hunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she has a number of <laughs> terrific moments, but she has an insane laugh at the end of this film, which is one of the <laughs> best things I have seen on screen all year. Like that would almost get her into at least my top 10 actress. Yeah. Of this year, just for the quality and choice of that laugh. And many very memorable screams. Yes, a, very a, good a screamer. phenomenal screamer. Like, seriously, one of the best horror heroines I've seen in a really long time. And then I also just wanted to mention Adam Brody, um, plus a beard, mm. equals extremely hot. Yep. And he was really great in the movie. He was. The whole cast was really great. Andy McDowell. Whoever played the aunt. I'm sorry, I don't know oh, the yeah. actress's name. Uh-huh. She's got a great scowl. Who looked like a Julie Walters type yeah yeah um so that is my number 10 and this matches a number of the films on my list which is like i would rewatch it in any moment which doesn't always happen because sometimes i have films on my top 10 where like i really really love them think they're incredible but they're like hard watches yeah where i would have to be in a specific mood to want to rewatch it no matter how much i love it yep whereas this like let's throw it on right now let's cancel let's call the whole thing off and just watch ready or not Amen. <laughs> nice. Uh, who would like to go next? Ready or not, it's time for Nathan's top ten. <laughs> My number ten is The Two Popes. Not those Dir- rascally popes. <laughs> Directed by Fernando Mireles. Mireles? Um, He, uh, anyway. So, this one is surprising to myself that it's in my list but um it's it's a talky a talky <laughs> movie about popes and uh-huh. catholicism and um two popes sort of trading off power passing there's a torch being passed and long conversations about what the catholic church's role is in the world and to its followers mm-hmm. okay you lost me already. I get it. Yeah, this yep. really but, does not seem like a Nathan movie. But it was so tightly written, I thought, mm-hmm. and well acted, and I thought that it was a an interesting view into the humanity of of characters who are seen more like gods in mm. you know, especially maybe especially to those like ignorant souls outside of Catholicism who like. I know they're not like actual deities yeah, as popes, yeah, yeah. but they're like 
revered you know, icon. They're revered in a similar way, right. or or in a greater way than any other like human figure on the planet. Yeah, in my eyes, at least. Um, so that was fascinating and refreshing, and frankly, a relief. Yeah, and maybe that relief alone got it on the top ten. But um, like I said, the acting and the writing was very tight, and I also really liked the the fact that it's kind of it was kind of shot in a. I guess intimate. I don't know if it was technically documentary style, but like an intimate like a cinema verite quality. Yeah, close up sort of way that in an unostentatious way maybe, which contrasted with the extreme ostentatiousness of Catholicism at the Vatican specifically, like mm-hmm. and with scenes in the um, the Sistine at the Chapel. at the at the Vatican in the Sistine Chapel, etc. Yeah, that was just I. I thought it worked really well. I thought it was... It was a very enjoyable scene. Um, I really liked it. Yeah. Which, it took me a really long time to watch it, because I was like, you know what I'm not in the mood for? A talkie about two freaking popes and the Catholic <laughs> yeah. Church. Yeah, it sounds dreadful. It, 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 it really was like such a hard thing to just press start. But then it was, it was like totally engrossing yep. and enjoyable and terrific performances. It's so nice to see Jonathan Price get a chance to have like a lead yeah. role like this. You know, I feel great. like Jonathan Price is like a, a hitter when it comes to like the supporting character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he yes. was the husband to the titular wife the la- <laughs> last year. He sure was. Um, oh my God, I forgot. <laughs> His Spanish is so good. His Spanish is great. I also would definitely watch a whole other film that's just the two of them watching the soccer game that plays yes. over the credits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, like that that sort of like buddy comedy quality to it (laughs) was really surprising and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Totally agree. So anyway, that's my that is my honorary testicle movie. I know I (laughs) avoid testicle movies. I don't think that that really qualifies. It does have two men as its only character, but that's hardly a testicle. It's not in the same way as like the Irishman, which I assume will bleep out and post. (laughs) (laughs) But. That's all. That you even mentioned it? <laughs> right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> really long movies. All right. Nice. That's, That's all. Good. Uh, my number 10 uh, is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Ooh. A, mo- a directorial debut of Joe Talbot, uh, which an assured debut. Oh, Definitely. Right. It's, it's, it's bold. Um, which he co-wrote um, with Rob Reichert and uh, co storied uh, by him and Jimmy Fails, who's also the star of the movie. And it's based loosely on his life um, in, obviously, San Francisco, uh, kind of a family home that they lost and were kicked out of. And he um, continues going back to this home uh, with his BFF, uh, just kind of renovating it, even though he doesn't, his family doesn't own it. He doesn't live there, but he has such an emotional connection to this physical place um, and by extension, the city of San Francisco, um, which is so well depicted just mm-hmm. as a place yeah. and a place that someone has an emotional connection to that you are able to dive right in. I was hooked from the opening montage, which is so fucking good. And the, the score in the movie is phenomenal um, by Emile Mosseri. Though the opening montage is set to a Michael Nyman piece that I was already familiar with that's so good and so well executed. But the actual, that entire opening montage, which just sort of shows the city and 
one of my favorite little touches is some of the opening shots are like kids near the wharf or the water and there's a bunch of men in like hazmat suits and it's like you know again another like haves and have nots the city is changing it's been gentrified and yeah people that have the privilege of caring about the environment and what's happening and there's like a nuclear waste plant basically right off the coast that has been seeping into the water and affecting people and yeah it's just it's just super good but um that entire opening um preview trailer was like they made it as a kickstarter video to get funding for the movie did plan b like brad pitt dd kleiner jeremy or whatever the you know those those those, those plan, plan b, b folks I, I who don't, make but okay yeah great movies like moonlight yes stuff yeah. like that. 12 years um, of you know got in with them and helped get the movie made and i'm very glad it was made it's obviously a personal passion project and you feel that it's intimate but artistically bold and has a lot to say um i know a lot of people found it maybe too whimsical or kind of fairy tale like but that's exactly what drew me in and ultimately gave it a spot on my top 10 uh i think the whole ensemble literally every movie in my top 10 has a phenomenal ensemble yes every year there's just more and more incredible ensembles but jonathan majors is the best friend donald glover Jonathan Majors so... plays Mont, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, he was fucking So phenomenal. good, and I love how they work in theater, and, like, the play that he's writing, and that house is obviously a, a whole character unto itself, and it's so incredible. Um, it's just such a great lived-in sense of place and character, and it's uh, a small indie that I missed in theaters, but I'm glad I had a chance to check out. It's on Amazon, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. It's a beautiful, lyrical poetic piece of film would you say that san francisco is almost like a character in the film you know i would (laughs) i would (laughs) yeah it's really great i it's number i mean i know we'll later say all about all of our honorable mentions but it's number 12 on my list and that's one of those ones that i literally crammed in this past week and i think there was just too much stuff already saturating my brain and i'm kind of curious to see where it might land Right. A few years from now, because it's terrific and definitely worth seeking out. Yep, sticks with you too. Yeah. I also love the character of Kofi, um, their friend who then like hangs out with them once at the house, once they kind of get the house back, but they don't really, um, and then ends up, you know, something tragic happens later. But that actor had like just gotten out of prison where he was like falsely accused of, I oh, think, whoa, murder I and was in prison for a long time. They like heard his story and were like, okay, and cast him on the spot and sort of created the he's role great. around him. And he's so good. So oh, good. Also Danny Glover. Danny Glover. The glove. I missed, mm-hmm. I, I really had a reaction watching Danny Glover in that, that I was like, I miss you, Danny Glover. <laughs> yep, me too. And one of the best endings of the year. Too. I mean, the opening yeah. too. Opening and ending. If you can nail both. Yep. You're good to go in this sure. And again, also another very interesting one dealing with like wealth inequality. And... For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nathan, you want to start nine? Sure. It's my turn for mm-hmm. number nine. <laughs> <laughs> my number nine of the year is Atlantics. Nice. Uh, directed by Maddie Diop. Also a debut. Yeah, her first film. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think she may have acted in something. Yes, she's but, but yeah. Course, but her yeah, directorial debut. Yeah. yeah. So this is a movie set in Senegal, in Dakar, Senegal, um, <laughs> West Africa. And um, there's a group of construction workers 
who are struggling to get paid for length of time, weeks or months. Like, it's been a while since they've gotten paid. They sort of decide to, correct me if I'm wrong, but start a new life. Like, they, like, go out to sea to kind of, like, find... It has a little bit of a fairy tale quality to it. Like, Mm -hmm. they're starting a new life by going out on the ocean and, like, trying to go somewhere where they'll be treated better sure. and I mean, actually, like, like the actual can sustain. Immigrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Experience of trying to cross whatever sea. Yeah, this movie weaves... Yeah. yeah, this movie weaves a lot of, like, real, real experience into, like, ethereal, like, magical realism, mm-hmm. fairy tale magic, um, stylistically, that I think works really well. Um, but then the, from there, the movie centers on... A group of women in the town, um, the girlfriends, the girl, wives, yeah, the the partners of these men who have left, um, and I don't think I want to say much more about the plot necessarily, but the movie is just so like there's, it's such a a, a sensory experience, mm-hmm. the sound editing and sound mixing and the um, the lighting and. Um, the score, they all combine to create this sometimes overwhelming sensory experience, which um, I thought was used to such great effect and was part of what put this movie over the top for me. Um, yeah, I think, is it on Netflix? Is that- it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so seek it out. It's, um, it's in French and I think it's mostly in French. Anyway. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't think I have anything else to say. No, that's... This is my like most regretted... This was the one that I really tried to cram in this week. And yesterday when I got... I was like, I'm going to watch it when I finally get home from work. And then by the time I finally got home and got done everything I needed to do today, for today, I was like... Like no. I can't. I don't have the brain space, and I'm sad. I'm curious. This maybe won't mean anything to our listeners, but we were just having before we started recording a conversation about Toni Morrison, and how there haven't really, besides Beloved, been any Toni Morrison adaptations. And I actually was just hearing someone saying that Maddie Diop and like the style of Atlantics, oh, that yeah. Maddie Diop would be really good at adapting a Toni Morrison. I think so. Project. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It's a haunting work worth checking out. Speaking of haunting, my number nine is Us. Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out that proves that Get Out was no fluke because Us, maybe not quite as good, but it's still damn good. It's a similar like genre mashup of horror comedy, though I would definitely say this one leans more into the being just more of a straight-up horror, and it is yeah. often pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, though, like, really almost all the movies on my list and some of the ones we've already talked about, like, Ready or Not, are just fucking fun. And that, (laughs) ultimately, I kept coming back to movies that I just had fun watching because that's what I needed most in 2019, I guess. Um, certainly less subtle in its symbolism and the whole allegory of it, which I think works better than the actual narrative of the movie. Like, if you sit and think about some of the specifics of the plot and what happens. It doesn't hold together as well as some other movies on my list or as Get Out, but it's still so... He's just such a good director. He really... It's so yeah. visually iconic. The red jumpsuits, the shears. Yeah. The... the What city is it? Santa Cruz? The boardwalk? Yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever it is. is. It's just... Yeah. 
It's she real good. Um, <laughs> and so fun. And Lupita fucking Nyong'o. Like, I mean. Such a great role, but an incredible performance that really anchors the the rest of it and elevates that movie to uh, number nine on my list. Um, yeah, I don't know what else. I mean, the score. Oh, the score. And the way they use I Got Five on it. And right. Keep manipulating yeah. it. And then that, like fight scene, the dance fight scene between the, the two Lapitos. Lapitos. <laughs> I also think, and just to like comment on the thing that you said about like, if you look at the plot thing, it doesn't hold together. I think that that's like a problem, a little bit of our generation that now, you know, you have like a million YouTube videos that are like, this plot will kill. And I know that that's yeah, not yeah. what you're doing, but like, this is an allegory. This is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Any of those, if you look at it, you could poke like, well, how, you know? Yeah. How does the candelabra and Beauty and the Beast... Like, whatever. Like, I'm not... (laughs) Those things aren't actually interesting because that's the point of storytelling. It's not real life. If you're making, like, a very serious... um, Like, cinema verite, to use that term again, type film, then that would be a critique to have. Or I would say if you're doing, like, a murder mystery and then, like, the plot doesn't hold together so you're just frustrated because you're like, the mystery doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Something like that. But that's not what this film is. No. It's an allegory. It's a fairy tale. But I think because it's a little shaggier, it doesn't... It didn't stay with me as much as Get Out. It's not quite as resonant. That's fair. I mean, I would also say, though, that he is taking on something that is less subtle. Oh, for sure. Like, wealth inequality and sort of the different class systems in America versus, I think, like... The thing about racism is that it is insidious and subtle. Yeah. So you could even make the argument that that's what's so brilliant right, about it, right? That he's matching that, like, that yeah. symbol. Of, yeah, for sure. I and think, it's, yeah, for me, what it, it seems to me that maybe part of what you're saying is that he has more ideas, too, that he's grappling with for in this sure. movie versus yes. Get Out, which is more iconic because... It's a very It's specific. a little bit more... Well, a lot of it more focused. Yeah. Right, which still... I mean, it's still just as immaculately crafted and like yes. it's such a puzzle he's such a it, he, I mean he's like a Hitchcock I mean if yeah. we only have those two movies that he's made so far to go off of like yeah. that opening and she's watching the TV and you see her reflection yeah, on TV so and you great. see the hands across America and you if you look at some of the VHS tapes that are in the wall like it's all everything has a purpose so and a point including yeah, yeah it's it's yeah, there's not a waste of ride and it's so fun it is and so funny and, and another great and ensemble weird. Like, yes, yeah, it's idiosyncratic. Yeah, it's his vision. Yes, yeah. Also, great children, great performances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who are required, especially I would say, like the daughter, like required to do really challenging stuff. She's also having to play dual roles. Like, yeah. I mean, the boy is two to a degree, but the young, the one version pretty much just wears a mask the whole time. And Elizabeth Moss. God, I fucking love Elizabeth. She had some fucking great what performances last year. Have. No shit, she's so good. Her putting on the lipstick is right, and the then like do moment. the shears and basically doing her own facelift. Yeah, uh, yeah. So good. <laughs> um, so it's me. Mm-hmm. You. Yeah. Okay. Number nine for me is my first uh, female directed film. And it is Booksmart. Nice. Directed by Olivia Wilde. And this is a movie that, again, is just super fucking fun. Yep. Like, have a cocktail, have an edible, whatever. (laughs) It's legal in your state. Um, And enjoy. Yep. But it's also one that I realized, because I just rewatched it fairly recently, 
that I, I wish I had that movie when I was in high school. And speaking of actually ready or not and having like such a fucking great heroine, mm-hmm. this film had two female characters who I could actually like see myself in. And they had a friendship. Yeah, that bond. A bond that I feel and relate to with the women I have been friends with and I'm friends with in my life. Like that connection in a way that doesn't really exist even in most films, I feel like. I feel like it's gotten better. Like that's part of the thing, right, that I love so much about Parks and Rec mm-hmm. is the friendship between Anne and, and Leslie. Leslie. Yeah. And I just love to, that we're to a place now where we can have multiple female characters and actually show like true female friendship, which outside of probably my current partner, like the most significant loves of my life have been my female friends, you know, mm-hmm. and you guys, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> um, So I just love that. And then I laughed so much. I also really enjoy, and I've seen this as a criticism of the film, but I love it about the film, which is that the high school sort of exists in this weird utopia. Yes. <laughs> where like there are many people of color where it's not an issue that there are people of color like you know what I mean Mm -hmm. that there are openly queer characters who are embraced and don't seem to experience any sort of homophobia um yeah it's very like forgive me like woke and progressive right without being like showy about it right and I get that there probably is not a high school that is like that but again it comes back to like what I was saying about you know film versus reality it's a movie it's a high school buddy movie. it's a high school buddy that, movie right? and like if i'm a high schooler watching it i want to exist in that world yeah i want to watch where like even the characters who you think like the um triple a mm-hmm. who again and like a lesser film the films that came out when i was in high school yes would have been she's the mean girl the, the mean girl slut who steals your boyfriend blah blah, blah. and it humanizes and she gets her comeuppance in the end but in this no. right it humanizes her and it ends with her and beanie felstein being friends like just it's such a lovely warm place that you can just go and laugh and have fun Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver are incredible in it in very different ways Beanie Feldstein is hilarious as an uptight type A who I very much relate to (laughs) and then Caitlin Deaver is doing much quieter work throughout a lot of the film and it's so deeply moving the scene of her swimming in the swimming pool like makes me tear up you know it's Mm -hmm. yep it's really great. And again, another fantastic ensemble. Every other person at that high school. Billy Lord. Billy, well, and then I was going to say, and my last note is just Billy Lord in all caps, exclamation point. <laughs> Every time Billy Lord comes on screen, I'm laughing out loud. Yep. And there's not a wasted moment. I'm just thinking about, because again, she's been consistently funny throughout. And like one of the last shots of her is her. <laughs> It's a two, it's like a double whammy, which is one, they're at the graduation ceremony and it cuts over and this character who's been completely erratic and insane is playing like a crazy hard classical piano piece at a grand piano. And you're like, Like who is this? Like it's nothing. And you're like, who is this woman? And then the next time you see her, she's passed out on top of the piano. And I think that's the last time you see her and it's just mm, chef's kiss. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just such a fun, smart comedy that's gentle and loving in all the ways that I needed in 2019. Amen. a great uh, core female friendship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the best love stories of the year. Truly. Yeah. 
All right, uh, Maddie, tell it's us your me. number eight. Number eight. All right, ten and nine are done. My number eight is Hustlers. Yeah. Lauren Scafaria film. Uh, we love you, Gary. What else can I say? <laughs> oh, Kiki Palmer. Another uh, yeah, fantastic year. Him. Such a good movie. Um, Come on, Gary. <laughs> we love you, Gary. <laughs> this is based on a magazine or newspaper article. A Van, uh, uh, New yeah, York a, magazine? A, mag- a magazine article. Yeah, yeah magazine article um, about a group of... Strippers in New York who post uh, 2007-8 financial crisis kind of band together and come up with a system to scam rich, mostly like Wall Street types, uh, like out of their money via like credit card fraud, fraud and or like drugging them and using their cards. And then what are they going to do? Tell the police that they got defrauded by some strippers? No. It's brilliant. It's so good. It's yeah. a brilliant scheme. It's a great um, scheme. I know. I'm like, that's a good scheme. It is. Um, but... Uh, so one of the best movies I watched last year that was not a 2019 movie was Goodfellas, which I'd never seen before, and it's a you know Scorsese movie. I was watching some Scorsese <laughs> stuff right, oh, um, to prepare oh, for the you Irish. Oh, you were watching men. cinema. I was watching real cinema with a capital C, <laughs> vomit, um, and I fucking loved it, uh, which was just a huge disservice to the Irishman, which I did not love, but was. I thought a great companion to Hustlers, which obviously there's plenty of oh, yeah. articles, you know, comparing the two or at least mentioning the two and similar, you know, milieu. Um, excuse me with the French words. Uh, you, but that just sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. That just like elevated the movie for me, and it's so dumb that it didn't get the awards traction that it should have. Especially also too because it was written by. Lauren Scafaria and then offered to Scorsese and a bunch of other male directors who've made similar movies in that genre until finally she had to make like a sizzle reel for them to finally be like oh okay yes you can direct your own script thank fucking god too we've already discussed this off mic about how especially for a movie that features so much skin it's very it it could be super male gazy if it was directed by pretty much anyone else uh, especially a man, but just the way it, it, your sympathies lie and the way it's filmed, it's so empowering and it's such yes. a, it's also just such a fucking fun time and you're really rooting for these strippers yeah, who are doing illegal activity, but also are maybe justified and it's, a, it goes along with the theme of an, Income inequality and the haves and, and have specific nuts. and specifically uh, almost all with the exception I'm thinking of like Lily Reinhardt who is also terrific mm. and is one of many characters this year who has uh, vomiting yes. as a personality <laughs> as like quirk a tick. yeah <laughs> which would normally bother me but in almost all of the cases that they were deployed this year it made me genuinely laugh um, but they were mostly women they're also mostly women of color mm-hmm. which I think is significant you know yep that is like this is how women of color in a shitty economy can find power. Yep. And, and success. it's through using their body. Like, yep. Which that, I mean, Jennifer Lopez, obviously the Oscar uh, snub is a bunch of bullshit, but it's one of the most dy- dynamite, just a dynamic performance that capitalizes on her charisma and right. just commanding presence physically. And yeah. yeah, she just, she looks fucking great on screen. Yeah. Not just like, she just has an aura of classic movie star. Yeah. I want to watch her for hours and hours. I'm glad that that 
performance has been put to celluloid. Um, the like framing, like the journalistic stuff with the Julia Stiles yeah. doesn't necessarily isn't as good as the rest of the movie, but it does provide Constance Wu a lot of great acting moments. Yeah. Who she's great uh, in the lead yeah. role, and it also the the last one, like the ending. When it cuts back to Ramona, Jennifer Lopez's character, and she keeps the picture. Yeah. It's it's aces. It's so good. And I love to... It was like emotionally affecting too. Like I felt myself not just... Because again, it's a blast. Yeah. Like I cancel this podcast. Let's watch it right now. Like so much fun. But it also like I was genuinely like moved and affected and invested. It's probably the movie in my top 10 that I'm most excited to revisit because I haven't yet. And yeah. I didn't want to revisit so quickly after seeing it in theaters because I want to give it some time because I know it's going to be a fucking blast again, so I want to forget more of it. Yeah. So I can tr- almost experience it again Like for the every first single time. Kiki Palmer line reading. Bless you. Yeah, that, another fucking great ensemble. Also great. Yeah. Yeah. Which I would say, I mean, you know, we don't, we like in our top 10 to not really dwell on like the negative films of the year, but I will just say that it's so interesting that like there is one film this year that is just a sad, empty knockoff of Scorsese films mm-hmm. mashed together and it's nominated for 11 Oscars. Yep. And then there's another one that is uh, certainly indebted to Scorsese's style but putting its own stamp like on it with much more to say. Yep. And also about, you know, women instead of fucking white guys and it has zero, zero nominations. So that's yep. all that needs to be said about that. Um, it's me, right? You, number eight. Yeah. Number eight. Uh, it's a movie called Oos. By Ooh. Jordan Peele. Ah, oui. Oui, oui. Uh, yeah, you. J'adore. J'adore. <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved Us. What a blast. You already talked about it so much. Um, I think the only other thing I had in my notes is like, I think, again, it's another take on income inequality um, in this country, but the interesting, some pr- really provocative ideas, which is that like, in order to have essentially a middle class there has to be like a subterranean yeah. lower yep. lowest class. You have to be above someone. In order for the middle. middle class to even exist. Yep. And like that our basic economic system is dependent upon the suffering of the very lowest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does it obviously in a really provocative way. And then building on that with the Lupita character, just how hard it is to change that situation, yeah. like how impossible it is to climb out of it, and that it like essentially is a violent process yeah. to move from one mm-hmm. class to the other, which is such a great rebuke of just the like American bootstrap fallacy that we all get brought up on. Yep. Which I love too, the title, but it's us. And then I was just literally before we recorded this reading something that Jordan Peele was like, well, yeah, and it's called us. Obviously, it could be like, U.S. like the U.S. and I'm so daft. Of course, didn't even consider that. But, but it, charming that you're daft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, you're so daft. <laughs> it is something I get called often. Because you just watched the Downton Abbey movie. Probably um, yes. And then I was just also had that good kid performances we talked about Winston Duke. We talked about Lupita, which you know we talked about, and we'll probably talk about in our performance thing more. But I would just because I watched it, rewatched it recently. Um, and obviously she's doing like incredible physicality and physical choices when she's playing red, but she's also doing some really subtle, amazing physical choices when she's playing, uh, I forget, Adelaide, 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 which is like her backstory. And this is something that I just particularly like 
I feel like if you didn't know, you wouldn't necessarily notice it. She's playing a character who's a former dancer. Right. And she carries herself like a dancer. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. a dance teacher. I work with dancers. You're a dancer. We know how, like, people who have taken ballet for 16 years of their life, like, walk a little differently. Do things a little differently. And she moves like a former dancer, which is, like, she didn't need to do that. Oh, no. She didn't have to go that hard, and she did. Similar to Jordan Peele, like, executing, like, perfect choices to create this puzzle and fit it together. She made the same choice, especially watching it a second time, knowing the complexities of the characters, plural, that she's playing. Watching it a second time, it's just an even richer experience to appreciate how fucking great she is. Why she wasn't nominated is a fucking travesty, but... And it balances the tone so well between the horror and the comedy moments and, like, Winston Duke as your comedic relief, just chef's kiss. I also love that it couldn't be, because he was such a, like, in a film with, like, lots of amazing performances from bigger names in Black Panther, I feel like he was a character who really popped, like, his presence. Mm -hmm. And, like, his character and us could not be more different from M'Baku. So warm, yeah. And nerdy and Funny. basically he's doing Jordan Peele's voice. Like <laughs> it's just terrific. Um see so my number eight is us or no, US. Oh you wow. daft boy. <laughs> you <bugger. laughs> Nathan. My number eight. Eight. Ocha. Yeah. My number eight is Pain and Glory. Ah. Directed by Pedro Almodovar. Heard of it? Yes. <clears throat> um this one is about a film director who is sort of confronted with his past and present and all of his choices at once, um, somewhat later in life. Uh, mm-hmm. That's basically all it's about, but um, it seems a bit... I, don't, I haven't read too much into it, but how, to, to what degree is it autobiographical at all? Or at least I mean, it seems like a lot. It seems at lot least inspired, yeah. at the very least, by, his, by Almodovar's career himself and the choices he's made as a director. Um, Though hopefully not too autobiographical, because damn, that character's in like, a lot of pain. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. But I, I think, <clears throat> you know, this one is the best Almodovar I've seen in a long time. It's a little bit less... It's, like, a little bit more subdued than some of his older, like, 80s and early 90s stuff, and a little more, like, um, intimately focused on the characters, like in Talk to Her or All About My Mother, Mm -hmm. those kinds, which happen to be two of my favorites of his. So I I appreciate that about it, that it allowed... I don't know, the, like... The, like, flamboyance of some of his older movies I, of course, love as well. But in this case, it really allows focus on the inner life of the character and the inner turmoil that he's experiencing. Um, It's a great effect. And and Antonio Banderas plays the lead character. Um, He's so good. He's really, really good and super sexy, as he always has been. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a must a must-see. This is the one that is another that I just did not get to while it was in theaters. And I don't even... Is it streaming yet? I don't think it is think streaming It's yet. available to rent as of, like, this week. But. Right. So I just... I... Which I know is going to, like, really throw off our best actor ranking. Oh, yeah. I'm, like, just tempted to put him on anyways, because I love Antonio <laughs> Banderas. So, like, I'll just put Antonio Banderas for Zorro in 1998. Yes. <laughs> 
it's a continuation. Yeah. Mask of Zorro, Mark of Zorro, and Pain and Glory. Yeah. Same, same universe. I will say that that seems like the film that I'm more interested in watching that is an older director sort of reflecting on his own career. Oh, yeah. Versus The Irishman, which I did watch and just... <laughs> yeah. Right. Or yeah. like Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. Like directors yeah. late in careers sort of looking back with on their, their artistic and personal just legacies. Right. And this, I think, is... The, the best. best executed of them, and it's still very clearly an Almodovar film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Loved it. Nice choice. Thank you. To number seven. Back oh, to you, Miss Elizabeth. Number seven. All right, here's my um, second female-directed film in my top ten. And yes, I'm going to be obnoxious and point it out, just because I'm really pissed about uh, misogyny. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is interesting, actually, as it connects to this film. So this is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Ooh. directed by Muriel Heller. Yeah. Um, and it's this seems like a sort of dismissive way to describe it, but it's really just a lovely film. It's tender. It's very tender, mm. but it's grappling with some really big ideas. And what I love is that she uses Mr. Rogers more as, like, a frame. Uh of thought versus it being in any significant way about like Mr. Rogers. And I was thinking when you were talking about the two popes, but then I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to give away that it was on my list, Mm. but how Mr. Rogers is another one, right? That we like, don't think about being sort of like a flesh and blood human person. Yep. He is this sort of the symbol of something. Yep. Goodness, nostalgia. Yeah. You know, and even like a documentary that was about him still didn't really, wasn't able to pierce that mythology around him. And I think that by not centering the film on him and using him almost as a object of like propulsive self exploration in the main character is Mm -hmm. a really effective and also demystifies Mr. Rogers. Like he feels human in a way that he did not even in a documentary about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's really about like, how limiting masculinity can be mm-hmm. and how to break out of these taught forms of masculinity and fraught father son relationships. And the main character played by Matthew Reese has also just recently had a son. So it's him grappling and he has his own complicated relationship with his father played by Chris Cooper, Chris Cooper, Chris man. Cooper. What a year. Um, and so it's him trying to figure out how to be, I would say not just a good parent, but how to be a good father to a son, Mm -hmm. which I think in 2019 is like a very necessary question to ask. Um, And I, yeah, I just, I was like deeply moved by it. I loved all of her transitions, which used the like Mr. Rogers. The set. Set. Yeah. And it, again, it's this, like, fine line that she walked, right, in Can You Ever Forgive Me and in um, Diary Diary of a Teenage teenage Girl, girl, which there are these things that could easily be interpreted as twee, Mm -hmm. but she knows how to do just enough that it's stylish. Yep. And that it's a stamp of, like, this is a Mariel Heller project without going into a place where it's cloying. 
And that's, like, a, such a mark of, like, a really strong filmmaker, right? Who's so confident in her own voice. She's been able to take on these, like, wildly different films now. All three films are very different in a lot of ways. But I could watch it and be like, that's a Mariel Heller film. There's such a great sense of period with, like... Yes! Um, Diary of a Teenage Girl in the 70s. Yes! Can You Forgive Me in the 90s. This in the early 2000s, yeah. like... Which, similar to Hustlers, is, like, period details that aren't, like flashy like right. look at what we're wearing, wearing those white low-rise jeans right yeah. exactly <laughs> we're all listening to britney spears yeah <laughs> um and then i also just you know i think matthew reese is great again the ensemble is really great in that film but um it's such a smart use and i again was going to say something when you're talking about hustlers with jennifer lopez of using someone's not necessarily even star persona but understanding the audience relationship with that particular actor. And so Tom Hanks does not look like Mr. Rogers. Not particularly, yeah. He does not sound like him. He's like putting on an effective voice, but he doesn't really sound like Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. But it's our relationship with Tom Hanks as an audience, right? Which is that we just sort of view him as this like warm, paternal America's dad. And that is the right way to go with Mr. Rogers instead of getting some actor who's just trying to actually like disappear into the role. Yeah. It's way more effective. And I would say it's the same thing with Jennifer Lopez and Hustlers, right? It's like our relationship to Jennifer Lopez as like this charismatic star. Yep. Um, so yeah, number seven is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, a movie that makes me feel slightly better about life that I mostly feel like is trash these days. A beautiful choice <laughs> on nice. the podcast. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Nathan, your number siete. Seven? Mm-hmm. My number seven is a movie called One Child Nation. <sighs> this was directed by Nan Fu Wang and Zhang Lin, two women. Um, oh, just throw that in my face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so this movie is about the one child policy in, in China, which I feel like most of us in the U.S. have heard about and understand, have a very basic knowledge of, like, um, this policy that allows families to only have one child to, ostensibly to help avert overpopulation, eventual starvation, etc. But when you see, when you actually see social engineering happening in this documentary style, I mean, you don't actually see it happening because it's a series of interviews with people who lived through it. Yeah. But you see the effects on actual people in their daily lives <laughs> and um, lost my train of thought completely. So you were just tapping the table. <laughs> You're getting into it, but adding audio. <laughs> Anyways, in their daily lives. No, it's just like a more personal look at it. This was another one of the films that I had really wanted to see and sadly did not get to it. Yeah, I mean, it, it like, it, it shows you the, like, cartoonish quality of propaganda, for example. Mm. The propaganda that, that um, the ruling government is, is sending to the people in order to keep them in line and enforce this policy. And you see the cartoonish propaganda, but then you see the dead infants piling up in the river because they're girls and one child really means one boy right when it comes to securing your family's legacy or your family's ability to you know 
survive in the world, a lot of people ended up feeling like they needed a boy. They had one shot. Yeah. So you end up with a bunch of um, murdered children. You end up with forced... Um, forced abortion. Mm-hmm. Forced abortion, forced sterilization. You know, all of these horrors. And it becomes, you know, one part Handmaid's Tale, one part Holocaust. And you see how easy it is for this to happen. Yeah. And right. that is what is makes it important i think also a very tough sit yeah very tough watch but um so not one that we cancel the podcast and put it on right now (laughs) no definitely not not. one to rewatch either (laughs) definitely not but i think i was i appreciated the 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 look into it I, i think it's easy when you're halfway across the world to just sort of think of it in the sort of uh not romanticized way but the sort of like broad strokes way we've thought of it oh an unfortunate policy that probably caused a lot of like stress and trauma well no like there was a lot of death and really bad and maybe that's just i mean a lot of that is my ignorance coming into it yeah but um it was powerful in that way very and i think yeah Right, because it's one of those things that I feel like growing up, you're just like, oh, in China, they only have one kid. And you don't think about, like, well... What that means. What do you have to do to only have one child? Right, Right. and to enforce that. And there's so many interviews and introspective questioning of people who are on the front lines of, like, enforcing that and... Right, the abor- so, they do it with like abortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Providers and, and so I mean, provide seems like a yeah. People who did like forced sterilizations like forced, and they're yeah. like human yeah, trafficking. You know, selling yeah. kids yeah. to orphanages, which right. oh yeah, which increased a thing. A, which increased adoption from the U.S. of Chinese children, which is like on the one hand, sure, great that a child is getting a home, but it's like so twisted. Yeah, the tr- the path to get there, and these kids have no idea. Right. Who where the you know yeah. who their parents were or and there's like, no ability to even find them it's like, just yeah. it's tragic all around so. yeah and all these people who were you know enforcing this but were saying that was the policy we were at war with you know and even today are still like okay with that or it was like, the, yep, yeah we were at war this is what had to be done with overpopulation it was life or death A threat to and our society. we had to enforce this and it, there's some really i think about the woman who performed you know countless abortions but then has now used her medical knowledge to you know just because of her own guilty conscience to help couples who are having trouble with infertility and every single one will then send her like a thank you um like a little flag or something with the image of their child that she helped them bring into the world and she's like yeah and so here they are and it's like this room just filled with posters and the camera like turns to another room and it just like keeps going and it's it's just really the, like, it's psychological a, yeah, trauma. It's a one. really affecting look at uh, another society. I mean, I think it also like is very timely to when we're living now and like to our own country, which is like the cost of insane policies that but how easy it is to convince a large population mm-hmm. that something awful is the right thing to do. Yep. yep. Right? So if you... Anyways, we don't need to have a political conversation on air. But, you know, I've also heard, like, there's been some critique of the film that, like, it's anti-choice for American audiences watching it, which is a stupid read from... I haven't even watched it, but it seems like it's a stupid read because the idea is that, like, the whole purpose is choice. 
So yeah. either side, whether you're prohibiting women from getting wanted, needed abortions or enforcing abortions on women who don't want them, the point is women should have bodily autonomy. Yeah. You know right. what I mean? Like, anyways, it's just like, no, it's yeah. either side is not good. Either side of women get fucked. Yeah. Right. I mean, like. Yeah. Globally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and actually when you said, Matt, earlier, like, this woman performed all these abortions, yes, but the key is she performed, she forced abortion. Like, oh, yeah. she didn't perform abortion. Like, right. I have no, like, abortion should be safe and legal and accessible, and that's all there is to it. She was forcing, forcing women who did not want that, yeah. Yep. So anyway, yeah. that just in case, you know, for people who haven't actually seen the movie. No, no, no. Um, Again, yeah. I think it's Out like, of context. Yes, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, well that was... <laughs> that was fun. Oh. Though, speaking of China and female directors, though, on a more positive note, my number seven is The Farewell. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Lulu Wang's film. Which um, it's actually pronounced Lulu Wang. Wang. Lulu which Wong. I didn't know until I was listening to interviews Good with her. And it's Lulu Wang. All right, Lulu Wang. Um, which uh, is also loosely based on her own family and experiences. Um, it started as uh, an episode of This American Life that she was on, uh, and then you know went to Sundance, and it feels like a very Sundance movie, like low to mid-budget, family dramedy, yeah. but it's like one of the best. But on the good, on the good the, side, yes, yeah. On the good, there, not yeah, a cliched one. Not a cliche Sundance film, but yeah. a, a good Sundance film. Um, but yeah, about family and culture, uh, it's based on her real experiences of her grandmother in China who gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and the family decides not to tell her that she has this cancer um, so that she can live out her final days ignorant of the negativity that's consuming her body and be able to continue living a positive life. And the main character, played by Aquafina, who um, she and her parents have lived in the U.S. for most of her life, you know, since she was five or six, um, dealing with, you know, the push and pull of her thinking this cultural, uh, what? I don't know. Yeah, she feels sort of, in a way, culturally tied to this place in her family, but is also disconnected from it. Right, like, and they're like, almost she's American and, of yeah. not telling someone this when she thinks, no, they absolutely deserve to know, and right. just that push and pull of culturally of the U.S. or Western society being about your, almost selfishly about yourself and your personal autonomy and experiences, right. and in China it being much more so about family and right. putting your needs second and... I mean, yep. in some ways I have to, and I, I, I am almost loath to make this comparison because I don't want to make it seem like it's both films about Chinese people, so they're the same. But it's sort of like the more nuanced, subtle version of, I think, a part that is a big part of Crazy Rich Asians, which is the, the difference between being Chinese-American versus being Chinese. Mm. Or, you know what sure. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's that culture... And about being dissonance between being yeah an immigrant too. Like I love right. there's uh, there's this movie is filled with amazing food moments and like <laughs> dinner table conversations and scenes. Uh, but there's a scene because one of the so there's nine night the grandma oh, uh, which is just Chinese I think for paternal grandma yeah paternal grandmother. Um, so they they all convene or reconvene in their hometown in China 
under the guise of um, one of Aquafina's <laughs> character's cousins getting married, even though he's just met this girl like a month ago, um, and his <laughs> family. Casting is great. Oh, ca- so oh my good. god! Just their faces. Such Again, ensemble. Yeah, another incredible ensemble. Um, so, so that they all have a chance to see Nai Nai again um, because one son and his family live in Japan and then um, Aquafina's family, um, her mom and dad and her have lived in America for a while. They get together and one of the dinner conversations is around uh, you know, America versus <laughs> China, obviously, versus Japan, this other family. There's just a lot of nuances in there. I love... Um, I mean, the whole ensemble, as we've just mentioned, is phenomenal. Zhao Shuzhen as the grandma oh, is so good. so good. She also should have been nominated. Aquafina's great. And then Zi Ma as her father. And especially, I really loved um, Diana Lim as her mom. Yeah. And she has a couple great moments. One where she's talking about how she hates public displays of emotion and how that's such a thing. And uh, I guess in Chinese culture, especially around like funerals, it's almost like you put on a performance of crying almost to honor the the dead or the deceased um and how much they meant to you and she hates that so much and then later in the film as they're leaving china and they are waving goodbye in the car to nai nai that's when the mom finally breaks down and cries a little bit but it's very subtle and it's just how it's executed is it's so good you can tell that the so lulu Wong. wong uh is partners uh, in real life with Barry Jenkins who power you know, couple like holy shit but you can also see just the, which is something I didn't know until like long after I saw the movie but yeah. just makes me love it more because yeah. it's like damn yeah they know art how to create it it's <laughs> yeah. it's so effortless I love to I recently rewatched it and I did not remember all the motifs with like the birds yeah and how like when Aquafina is first on the phone with um, the grandma and she's still in the US and a, a bird has flown into her apartment. apartment somehow and then by the time she's off the phone it's gone and the ending uh, it's yeah it's all just uh, real real good yeah resonant it's really note perfect and a good rewatch that's also really funny yeah for sure well I will um, go on because it's me right I start number six um, it is my third female director on this list, and it is Lulu Wong, The Farewell. Nice. <laughs> this nice. is my number six. Nice. Um, yep. So just to continue, I mean, you said basically all of it so beautifully. Um, but I would just say to anyone who's, like, thinking about watching it, I think if you hear the basic description, which is, like, family gathers in China to, like, keep from the grandmother that she's dying, like, there's a certain sort of, like, melodrama that comes from it. Sure. And it is very funny. Like, I mean, there are parts yeah. that are really moving and made me cry and whatever, but it also has a very uplifting ending. And it's only like an hour and a half. And it's, it's only like, like an hour and a half. brisk and, and buoyant. It's, and it's, yeah, and it's like very, it is very fun. Like, it's very rewatchable. It's not this like heavy, weepy melodrama, which I think the description could maybe which imply. Which even if you were you just don't. reading the script, you could see how it could veer that direction. Right. Like, it could also seem overstuffed. Like, it's tackling a lot, and, like, the Aquafina character, which I think Aquafina is great as a performance, but written especially, it's such a great character, and her relationship with her family and them pulling her out of China to a better life, presumably in the U.S., but how lonely that was and how disconnected she then feels from her blood blood ties and cultural ties in China. It's... yeah. No, well it's, executed. it's really beautiful. The other thing I would... <laughs> um, the wedding is amazing. 
the cousin has a if uh, Samira Weaving had an amazing laugh, the guy who plays her cousin has one of the most amazing cries I have ever. And just like drunk scenes, they're like yes. playing that game around the table. Yes. And just keeps losing, so has to take a drink. Yeah. Oh, it's it's um really terrific, and I will say that you know it's obviously great to see different stories told and I find myself more and more being drawn to them and finding movies that are about the same type of people that we see movies about all the time feeling tedious Mm -hmm. to watch, you know? Um, But it's also just this thing that, like, good stories are so universal. Like, even though I can't relate to any of the immigrant experience, one, I enjoy watching it, I enjoy immersing that and learning about different cultural experiences, right? Because we as empathetic humans should want to watch stories that are not our own. But my, like, lasting feeling, which I'd be curious to watch it again, I actually had some moments that felt emotionally overwhelming as they were talking about specifically the two sons the like guilt of moving so far away from their mother. From their mom, yeah. And I live not as far as they live from their mother, but like I live far away from my mom. I see my mom maybe like once a year, maybe twice. Yep. And I felt so emotional about it. I feel emotional mm-hmm. talking about it now. I feel guilt about it. I feel all sorts of complicated feelings about it. And you know what I mean? Like it's just like, yep. right, that like, the, spe- the more specific your story, the more universal it is. And yep. I think that this film is such an amazing example of that. So I don't really have anything else to say. It's real good. And I love, too, that the grandma's sister is played by the real-life yes. sister of yes. Lulu Wang's yeah. grandma's Grandmother. Yeah. younger sister. Yeah. Uh, it's perfect. That cast was terrific. Yeah. And yeah, um, what's her name? Xu Zhen. Zhao Xu Zhen. So good. Yep. So good. Um, your number six? My number six is Hustlers. <clears throat> which we have talked about Never a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked about most of it. I think the only thing I would add at this point, well, besides Jennifer Lopez was robbed, which is not something I've added. You've said that already. Um, <laughs> and by robbed, I mean of the Oscar nomination. But that's not really what matters in the end. Um, this movie will definitely outlast anyone besides maybe Matt's knowledge of the Oscars and who wins and is nominated. But I think the the thing that strikes me is this is like all and okay, two things. One why this was fun to watch and one why it was threatening. The same reason is that it's women who are not like women of color who are not supposed to have power right. stepping into their power. Yeah. And making it work. Yep. And that I mean, that's threatening to any number of white directors who may have been approached, whether they admit it or not, which I think, anyway, that's all, which both of you kind of said anyway. But Not only is that, but then the film also has zero fucks to give about any male characters. Yes, which was so refreshing, because I generally give zero fucks about the male characters when they're written. Yeah, there's one male (laughs) character who kind of has a integral part but only then really for plot reasons which is the one who sort of is what allows the scam to sort of unravel and then get caught right right but then every other man is so incident i mean like constance Wu has a boyfriend character who i think we don't even actually hear any audio of him speaking at any point we see them meet we maybe hear him introduce himself we see them meet and flirt and then we see a fight scene but it's done with without audio like it's like a montage where we see them fight and him leave that's how 
unintegral <laughs> like yeah. any male part is. I couldn't tell you anything about Gary as a character. <laughs> All I can tell you is Kiki Palmer saying, we love you, Gary, yeah. was amazing. And so I think that that is genuinely like so hard for men who are used to seeing themselves centered in stories to really see a film where they play absolutely no part. Yep. Right. Not about them. And it was not a small part of why I loved it so much. Because yeah. we've, I've been craving it. We've, yep. been, we've been craving it. And yeah. um, I think it came out in September, but to me it was like, that's what I want summer blockbuster movies to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so fun. So over the top and in parts. Yep. But like in, in ways that serve the characters in the plot. And it's just a blast yeah. from start to finish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they're allowed to be wild and like revel in their excess in the same way we get like Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. Showing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, come on, let me see women be shopping in a way that it's not right dismissive of women, but women having fun. Climb women, into my fur. Yeah, climb into my fur. <laughs> oh, any day, J Lo. I'm not worthy though. No, none of us are. All right. Bow down. Final one. Before. Last one of this. Yeah, yeah. my number six uh, is oh, straight white male alert uh, is Noah Baumbach's <laughs> Marriage Story. Uh, uh, Semi autobiographical. There is a woman in there. There is a white woman who is a co lead. Oh no, of course, but it's, it's his, <laughs> his film. Semi autobiographical, potentially um, film about divorce. A couple that just didn't work out. Played mm-hmm. by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. I love how mundane a lot of the details and what they choose to focus on as the plot like with all the stuff with the lawyers and everything all the decisions you have to make when separating your life from someone else when you've created this existence with them especially the child right a child of course most importantly but also a professional relationship and that he was a theater director and she was almost his muse for a while or like you know a big part of his theater company and potentially why it became so successful and why he's now a macarthur grant i think is the the grant the genius grant that he gets which then features one of the scenes of the year when merritt weaver is scarlett johansson's (laughs) sister has to serve him the papers in the kitchen at their family house in california and julie haggerty is the mom and they should both be in like every movie ever made another amazing ensemble that film oh truly everybody alan alda ray liotta of course laura dern yeah top to bottom excellent Uh, any movie that features two sondheim performances from the musical company like is going to be in my top 10 and what moments they are um yeah i don't know there's been a lot of talk about like where people's sympathies lie in terms of is the movie on his side is it on her side and i think that's a bunch of bullshit i think it's very evenly balanced film about why this couple should not be together and the reasons they don't work together which is too bad they clearly have a respect and had a love and a passion that didn't work out and i think it's depicted super well um and again that you know i think i saw it got on twitter which is awful we shouldn't talk about twitter but (laughs) that truly like the people who are like this movie is so stacked against her it's completely on his side or this movie is all on her side and against him that says way more about you yeah. and your issues so. with people than this movie. Because the movie is very evenly balanced, and I feel like the last scene is a clear sign of that. 
Yep. The last couple of scenes, the last like set piece, essentially. Evenly sure. balanced and totally uninterested in taking a side. Correct. Agreed. Yeah. That's not at because... all what is the goal of yeah. the right of the of yeah of yep. the screenplay. And not true of most divorce. I mean, right. leaving aside like an abusive partner or something like that, like. People are complicated. People can be shitty people, and people can be good people, and you can be all of that encompassed, and it doesn't work out. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like, yeah. Again, it's like a strangely, or like, God, do I want to watch a two-hour and ten-minute, because it's long. It's like it two was, hours yeah. and ten or fifteen minutes mm-hmm. moving. You're like, God, do I want to watch a two-plus-hour film about divorce? Kill <laughs> me now. Yeah. But it's breezy. It's very funny. Oh, yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like and it. Yeah. And it ends in a... Positive, in, a, like in a positive a way. Like, cathartic. I, I left, it feels therapeutic. Yes, I left feeling good. I didn't finish it being like, God, I'm so fucking depressed. <laughs> right. right. You know? Yeah. It's my favorite type of movie, just in that it clearly focuses on performances. And the performances mm-hmm. are what's getting across yeah. the words. And you can tell all those actors are having a fucking blast. Because yeah. those characters are so well-rounded and it's a lot to chew on. Like, Scarlett Johansson having that... Great monologue that's all in one take yeah. in the scene when she first meets Laura Dern. Yes, please. Yes, yeah. please. But the thing that elevates it for me is that Randy Newman score, which I know a lot of people don't like, but oh, for I me it's it like great. it gives it such personality that it I, I don't know, it feels like a, it a Norman me, Rockwell like piece of art. It also reminded me like of an old Nora Ephron like nineties movie. Ooh, sure. The score. Yep. You know what I mean? Like yep. it feels very like New York. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Feels like the best of Woody, or like a nineteen seventies, like yes. like it yeah, just yeah. feels it's perfect for the type of movie that I think Noah Baumbach was yep. trying to, and it make. helps set that tone, which I think is super well balanced. Yeah, yeah, classic. Nice. That's number six. Uh, we're gonna take a break, use the restroom, Woo! grab another cocktail, and we'll be back for our five through one of twenty nineteen. See Bye. you soon. <laughs> 